You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Bunny. Hey Bernard. How are you doing? Doing good. We are at the FOSS 2015 conference in Singapore, but I managed to schedule an interview with you today. <laughs> yep. A lot of people know you from the book that you wrote called Hacking the Xbox, and we know that you have done your PhD in electrical engineering mm. from MIT, and you've done a lot of work in open source hardware. What's the story behind from you moving from US to Singapore? Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, I, I got my degree from MIT, but actually my interest in electronics and hardware started well before that. When I was much younger, I just uh, play around and hack with hardware at home. There wasn't a thing with electronics at home that wasn't taken apart, much to my parents' chagrin oftentimes not put back together. But then, you know, I went to college, learned more about sort of some of the theory and whatnot. As part of my sort of natural curiosity, I would take everything apart, including my video game consoles. That's actually a habit I had for many, many years before college even. But it just so happened right around the time I was in college, the Xbox came out and they're actually starting to use relatively strong crypto to lock down the boxes at the time, which made it even more interesting to take it apart because it's, you know, you're curious why they're using all this you know, stronger crypto. I found a method for extracting some of the security keys from the Xbox at the time. And the DMCA had sort of just come out a few years before that, which sort of made the work that I did, which I had always done since I was younger, right? Possibly not legal anymore, right? And so it was sort of a shock to me that what I felt was very natural and something I had always had the right to do and never had any problem doing, all of a sudden now became controversial. Despite sort of some of the cautions of other people, you know, being careful about releasing the work and talking about it, I decided I should talk about it and release it because I've always done this before, right? I, I didn't feel like I had done anything illegal or anything wrong. And so I went out and we wrote a, a paper about the experience with the Xbox and published it, wrote a letter to Microsoft informing that we're doing this sort of stuff. Had a conversation, actually at the end of the day, things sort of settled out quite nicely. They, they said, look, look, you know, you're a PhD student, you're doing research, you know, we don't want to look like bad guys, you know, suing these people in academia and whatnot. So, you know, thank you for letting us know about the vulnerabilities and whatnot. So that, that actually worked out pretty well at the end of the day. And then for the sort of the arc of my life that took me from there to Singapore, I had uh, graduated from college and did a few, several actually hardware startups. I started out actually in chip design, designing wireless radios for Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, then did some nanophotonic integrated circuits, a company called Luxterra. After all of that, I decided that while chips are very interesting, I wanted to do something that was a little more consumer facing at the end of the day. And so I got involved in a startup called Chumbi, where we were building essentially little Linux computers for the masses. They were kind of app layers before apps existed on the market. We called them widgets at the time. That's where I kind of learned how to do manufacturing at scale. You know, we're building these and selling them directly to end customers. Uh, I started coming to China to understand how the ecosystem worked. And after my first visit to China, I knew I needed to be in Asia. Like US was just not the ecosystem for people who want to do hardware. You know, the action is out here. And so after a few years of working on Chumbi, I decided that we would start an office out in Asia. We decided to pick Singapore as our home base. Had all the right factors that we needed uh, uh, to, to get things moving. You know, we started a chunk, kind of Chumbi Asia office. After Chumbi spun down, uh, you know, as often startups are often, you know, to do, they don't, they don't work out. I stayed here, sort of have been sort of independent, having my own company ever since. So you started Bunny Studios. So I, actually, Bunny Studios, technically as a, the Bunny Studios LLC is actually a U.S. company, which I had for a long time. I actually started another company here, which I call Kosagi, which is Bunny Studios in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so Kosagi Private Limited was started in Singapore, which is I, I created this like, you know, sort of local version of Bunny Studios, which actually did all the hardware manufacturing. So if you dig into the details of what the business, Bunny Studios is actually more of an IP licensing. I do my, you know, my blog and other sort of stuff gets licensed through that. And then Kosagi is actually where all the hardware operations and manufacturing happen. And that's mm. here in Singapore. That's interesting. But I guess the most interesting things that you have been doing are all the open source hardware projects. Yeah, which has Definitely been- Definitely one of them was on the 
Japan earthquake in 2011, mm. where you created safe cast Ganga counter reference design. And it was an open hardware. I think you raised a lot of money in Kickstarter. Yeah, right. So the right after sort of the earthquake happened, that was just right around actually when Chumbi had wound up. Right, and I was looking for something to do that would be useful to other people. I got pulled into sort of the the SafeCast consortium by by Joey Ito actually at the time, and I was like, okay, what can I do? Like, I really want to help. You know, help sort of the situation. There's a lack of Geiger counters out there, and so I got involved in building an open source hardware reference design, which we then ultimately end up turning into a product which is distributed. I didn't actually make the product myself. The key thing is that it was open hardware. And another company picked up the open hardware and decided to manufacture the specs and distribute to other people, which is actually like a really interesting case study about how, how open hardware can enable other people to do things they couldn't do before. In fact, that was actually the first time I made a purchase on Kickstarter with that project. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Then the second project, which I'm also a funder, which is the Novena laptop. Right. Okay, I'm gonna say this because I'm born in Singapore, so Novena has a name. <laughs> I know you like to name your projects after places in Singapore. Yeah. So tell me about the Novena laptop. Yeah, so the Novena laptop is uh, sort of this chaotic project that we have going on where we decided that we, w- we just wanted to build, me and Sean Cross, who's he's my collaborator on this, we decided we just want to build something that we would actually use ourselves every day. Before, uh, as a hardware engineer, I was always designing things for other people, like these wacky products. And you'd always fight with these marketing guys who insist there's a market for this thing, and, and he knew better somehow he's a marketing guy. And we're like, look, we're tired of building stuff that we ourselves wouldn't even use, right? We put our effort, all our time in all our sweat and blood and tears into this product that we don't even believe in because some marketing guy said so. What would we use? Like, like we would use a laptop and it would be ARM based and it would be open and we could hack it and we could do all these sorts of things. And so like, well, that's kind of the genesis of the Novena laptop. Didn't know if he'd be successful. We started just building it for ourselves, honestly, in the beginning. We didn't care if anyone would use it uh, outside. But when we started blogging about it, talking it, about it to other people, it seemed there's a lot of interest, and we decided eventually to go to a crowd supply to fund the device, and we end up raising much, much more money than we anticipated for the laptop, which is, you know, it's a it's a good outcome at the end of the day. Mm. And it's running on the net. You, you chose Debian as the operating system. <clears throat> Correct. Yeah, Why? we're using Debian. Why is it? Why not Ubuntu? Because I think Ubuntu is much more well-known. Yeah, Ubuntu had a lot of challenges in terms of supporting, for example, an ARM-based system. Ubuntu, for example, the desktop desktop management system requires 3D support. You have to have 3D drivers with the latest version of Ubuntu. And we wanted to have a full open stack through and through. We didn't want to use the closed source drivers that were provided for the 3D system. And so we don't have enough comprehensive 3D support, for example, to support that desktop. We have to use XFCE or some other sort of of a slightly less tuned up uh, desktop management system. So Debian allows us to configure that at that level. And also Debian has, you know, we really actually kind of have really grown to love Debian with the, you know, the package management system, the release methodology and how they do the staging and so forth. It, it's a kind of is more methodical. It has like a, a sort of a cleaner release model so that we're not constantly dealing with a peppered by updates and crazy stuff like that. And the other thing is Debian also naturally targets ARM. They have an ARM HF build that so we, we can just use. So we actually don't have to, you know, support our own, you know, build system and, and for all the all the support programs and packaging and so forth. Mm. So reinventing the laptop, one of the things I thought was interesting in your crowdfunding campaign was the heirloom laptop, which I call it the Apple edition equivalent <laughs> of a laptop where it's crafted with wood. I want to buy it, but it's just way out of my pay grade. So what is the kind of thinking behind that design? The idea behind the heirloom laptop is that there's a much longer arc that goes behind how we got to it. But basically, technology is slowing down a bit. So it's not so ridiculous that you would have a laptop that you would consider keeping for a long time. Right. And so we wanted to build, you know, a loom that we could hand down to generations, some something that you use to do your work that you could hold on to, it had a lasting value and a craftsmanship that you would admire simply for the craftsmanship itself. And so we engaged a woodworker from uh, Portland, Oregon. His name is uh, um, Kurt Mottweiler, and and he is going to you know handcraft a dozen 
heirloom laptops, every single one with a different finish, every one with a different sort of set of woods and blends and grains and so forth. So every single one will be unique and there'll only be 12 ever built and there will be the heirlooms of the people who helped us make Novena real a reality. Yeah, there will be only 12. That's right. Of that. That's right. And no more of that, right? That's right. <laughs> I will hope to find a rewrite. Anyway, the, the <laughs> hardware is open source anyway. I should be able to find one. Yeah. But, and then there's another interesting project. I know uh, it, it got spin up into a company called Circuit Stickers, which is actually peel and stick electronics. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's called Chibitronics. Chib Chibitronics, correct. Yeah. What's the kind of the idea behind it? So Chibitronics is, as you say, it's peel and stick electronics. And the idea is to blend electronic technology with unconventional medium, like paper, fabric, glass, concrete, all these kinds of things. So you put it on the walls, you can put it on books, you can put it on other surfaces. Chibitronics itself, the, the, the core medium is sort of this flexible circuit board with this tape on the back that's conductive. And uh, you can build circuits using nothing but uh, you know copper tape, uh, or conductive ink or any kind of conduct you know, aluminum foil things around the home and you can sort of just pattern it onto paper or the wall or your window and then the, you can add light to these projects mm -hmm. and so it's it's really well suited for people who are crafters or scrapbookers people who want to create like greeting cards with some light that's really unique and different also it's well suited for education because there's no soldering involved you can go ahead and teach some basic circuits parallel circuits and switches and you know can build like switch logic gates and so forth out of it using the, the circuit sticker technique in the classroom environment with uh, very low cost materials and, and no danger from you know hot soldering irons and so forth. And so the, the Chibitronics itself and the circuit stickers is both an experiment in terms of combining this new craft medium and this new art, but also an experiment in actually manufacturing and supply chain. One of the Part of the reason that I'm involved in it and I, I thought what was really interesting is we want to develop a process that no one had ever seen before, right? So there's no, you can't just go to any factory in China and be like, hey, I want flexible circuits with their conductive tape. You know, they, be, they look at you like you're crazy, like this doesn't exist, right? So we actually went to China and worked with a factory to develop a full custom bespoke process to build something that never existed before. Uh, and build it in scale and build it at low cost uh, also for a minimum amount of money. Basically, this is funded out of my back, back pocket to try and get to that point and to see if this was even doable, right? Mm. And so, so far, the, the response has been really good. Also, happily, the production process has been pretty stable. And so I would say, so far, the experiment is running quite well. Mm. Interesting. And then because we are in the F FOSS Asia 2015, you just gave a talk on hardware trends. So I thought two things that came up from me. One was basically what we call the post-mall world, mm -hmm. where Moore's law is actually reaching its peak mm -hmm. for that. And you have some thoughts on that about what is what happens in this post-mall world in terms of hardware trends. What are they? Yeah, so as Moore's law slows down, the time between hardware generations gets longer and longer. It used to be that every 18 months, something new, better, much, much faster, much, much better would come out. And if you're uh, you know, a hobbyist or an individual working alone, you don't have a big corporation behind you, it's not your day job, it can take you several months to just even learn the basics. So if you want to open up the USB spec and start learning, you know, a particular generation of USB and design a circuit at home and tape it out and try and, and play with it, it's be several months, right, to get it. And then by the time you actually turn the product around, it'd be a couple of years, right, to build something using a particular platform and technology. In the heyday of Moore's Law, when things are moving really fast, it meant that anything you built as a hobby looked antiquated the day you could actually talk about it to other people, right? Now that Moore's Law is slowing down, you can actually take the time that an individual needs to learn the technology, turn around to a product, and show it to people. And by the time you show it to people, it's actually kind of equivalent to what the big companies are doing because there, there isn't a new technology node. There isn't a new faster processor coming out. The, the big implication overall, I feel, is that, for example, projects like Novena, where we took a laptop and took us two years to build it and even more time to fulfill it and get it in people's hands, that laptop is kind of still relevant today in terms of performance and specs compared to what you could have gotten a couple of years ago. And this was absolutely not be the case, like even three or four years ago that we would have been lapped by, by technology, we would be laughed out of the room basically. So I think in the post-more world, you'll see small teams of people able to learn technology, innovate and disrupt over time, and they'll become more and more competitive with the large corporations 
who have large groups of people working on stuff because you know the large corporations they have a lot of constraints around them supply chain and they have to make it work really well and they have to make it they have to sell a million of anything to recover their cost right so the products tend to be a little more generic a little more watered down a little you know the edges are more polished and refined, but at the same time, it's one size fits all. With sort of the open hardware and, and these smaller teams, you can build really sharp tools made for a very specific thing, kind of like Novena is a very sharp tool for hardware hacking, it has an FPGA built inside of it, it has all the things you need to sort of add things inside. It's a very sharp tool for people who want to do hardware hacking, and it's for a very small group of people, but we can make money doing it and we can actually get the product out there because we have the time to do it in a small group of people. We don't have to recover, you know, a $10 million investment with a team of 100 people designing the hardware. Right. And I guess this also opens up opportunities for small innovators. And I think you spoke about the concept of Shanjai, okay, yeah, just yeah. in case in Chinese, it actually means a pirate's den, actually. Right, correct. The Shanjai concept is actually quite well known in the Shenzhen hardware ecosystem. I mean, my one of our, my former uh, guests on the show, Ben Joff, who runs Accelerator, talks about that. Mm -hmm. I understand you're also a mentor there. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Yeah. Can you just kind of explain the concept of Shanjai so that for a wider audience, they know what yeah. is that about? My understanding of the Shanjai is, you know, it, it, the word does mean kind of pirate's den, but I like to liken them a little more like Robin Hood. Yeah. Right, so the, so so legend is is a little more yeah. benevolent. The margin story. Yeah, yeah, right. And yeah. so and so the my understanding is that a lot of these guys are sort of ex Nokia, sort of ex Rim, ex you know sort of Apple employees. So they learned about how to do phone design, and they got pissed off that the management was doing stupid things, and they are like, look, we can anything you can do, we can do better, right? So they they quit, and they start these small operations to sort of cobble together their own phones. And of course, since they left these you know, big companies, they have all the IP in their heads. There's no mistake that the phones kind of look very much like clones in the beginning. So they had this very bad reputation of sort of being copycats and whatnot. But the key thing is that these small groups of people had good ideas, or maybe not so good ideas sometimes, but they were unique individual things. Like I want a phone with a cigarette lighter on the inside, <laughs> or I want a phone that has a shaver, or I want a phone that has like these kinds of weird shapes or whatever it is. And they would go ahead and they would figure out how to build them and get them out there. Because the market they were particularly targeting in the beginning, the feature phone market, sort of the candy bar phones with just a simple menu, you can make a call over it, whatever it was, that the technology level required for that is actually quite low. And so Moore's Law met that demand several years ago, like 2005, 2001 range. And you didn't, you're almost in kind of like the stasis bubble. They're sort of a predictor of what will happen post Moore's Law because their technology kind of, quote unquote, got good enough. And the model they've had is they've had small groups of people who share IP very freely, very openly. So they're kind of open hardware-ish in, in the way they do it, not by license, but by the practice. And you would have these, like a, a person's really good at tooling for the cases, a person's really good at the RF design, a person's really good at the uh, OS or system, whatever it is. Each of them would have their own specialties and they would band together and, and trade favors and whatnot. Eventually, they could accomplish what large teams of people could do because they could like harvest particular specialities and build phones in at very low cost and, and and ramp to high volumes very quickly because they had this ecosystem of open and sh openness and sharing about them. And so I think the Shanzai actually is a really interesting case study of what could come in the future with open hardware, you know, if we can get a big enough ecosystem, enough people playing in it at the end of the day. There's also another reason why I invited you to interview on this show. My wife was also a hardware entrepreneur and she met you and also a couple of other hardware entrepreneurs who have met you mm. and asked you a lot of questions. And I know you've been answering the same set of questions over and over again. Right. In the spirit of open source, I'm actually going to make this freely, anyway, it's freely available anyway. Sure. So I'm going to ask you the same set of questions so that okay. we can scale this to more, to get your ecosystem sure. going. Sure. So typically, maybe I will start off from here is about guide for hardware entrepreneurs. What are the kind of typical questions a hardware entrepreneur asks about usually how they get started and what is your advice for them? If I were to sort of maybe give some core bit of advice to harder entrepreneurs, one thing is that it's very easy to build one of anything, but it's very hard to build 10,000 or even 100 of something. So the point at which you have your prototype is not really the point at which you should go and raise money, in my opinion. I mean, a lot of people raise it with even just pencil sketches and whatnot. But actually, all the sort of campaigns that I've done in the past, I don't, we actually didn't start the campaign until we had a full working prototype, actually several of them, and a kind of draft supply chain setup. 
we knew actually how we're going to manufacture. We had validated it in small lot quantities that we could do it. And then we would raise the money. And so that's how we've been able to actually fulfill our campaigns basically on time. I mean, modulo like a you know month or so sometimes for the really complicated ones like Novena. Mm-hmm. Typically, a lot of the, the hardware entrepreneurs, the questions vary very drastically, right? Because hardware requires a lot of knowledge and disciplines. It's not quite like software. You can just sort of like pseudo app get install mechanical engineering and you can kind of get this package together that solves it all with a virtual machine or something like this or some you know Python library you can import, right? If you want to go ahead and you're a great electrical designer, but you want to put it in a case. You actually have to put the effort in to build a case. There's no packaging to pull. You need to have sort of like I call it. You need this is the trifecta of, of hardware engineer. You want to have like an electrical guy, a mechanical guy, and a business guy. And you have to have all those three competencies on the team to actually be able to produce a product successfully. If you're missing the electrical guy, obviously you're kind of lost. I've certainly seen hardware startups where they have like a bunch of software guys and maybe a guy who can design a case and they have some ID and they have like, okay, so we'll use for the CPU. I don't know, we'll use a Raspberry Pi or like whatever it is. And then, and then they find it's too expensive. Like, okay, well now we have to design the like custom motherboard. How do we do it? And like, okay, you guys are lost, right? You guys really need an electrical guy on team. And you have you know teams that don't have mechanical guys. And so the ID doesn't look good. It's not appealing to cus- uh, consumers because they're kind of cobbling together something or their cost is awful because they don't understand mechanical. And then you need to have sort of the business operations person who sets up the supply chain. You have a great electrical, great mechanical guy and you're sourcing unobtainium and you're you're building this crazy thing that no one can ever produce and, and the margins are wrong because you just want to hit this $99 price point, but you're building it for $103. So every unit you're giving people $4 or whatever it is, you, know, you need to have that other guy who sort of is like, whoa, whoa, hold back. Like we actually sort of have to cut these features and build the supply chain and do these, do these kinds of things. So the questions I get asked really depends upon you know, people's specialities and so forth. But generally, I, you, know, mm. I, you have to have all these competencies. But given in the Internet of Things world, there is a lot of what I call integration between the hardware and the software. Mm-hmm. So usually, how does the team find the balance? I mean, in your, I guess Novena is probably one of those cases where you actually work with someone in a software and hardware. Mm-hmm. Is it actually very difficult to find that interface to kind of talk between these two worlds? The general question about, you know, what do you, what do you need if in terms of like a software team and so forth depends upon the nature of the product. If you're building like a bicycle light, you don't need a software guy, right? But generally most really interesting Hardware products are only interesting because they run a piece of software that's very interesting. So it's actually very critical to find that software component, that software piece in that case. And in fact, one of the things that like we do like when we were doing the hardware design is we actually do the software design first. Make sure that's sort of there because what you can do is from the hardware side is you can actually engineer and features in the hardware to make software easier. And many times, a lot of times we'll add little extra pieces of memory or or extra bits of hardware to go ahead and like smooth out the latency of responses or like improve the filtering for whatever your sensor is all because you don't then you don't have to write that code in software but finding the embedded firmware guy to 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 do that that middleware is also extremely important and and also a rare capability and what's the balance between like designing a piece of hardware and preparing the prototype for manufacturing to sell to the market and what are the pitfalls usually yeah. entrepreneurs need to look out for i like to tell a lot of the entrepreneurs that take the amount of time that you thought it took to design your product and take that much more time to design the testing apparatus for your product for manufacturing so building your product is one thing so i built you know, a widget, but then you actually, once you've built it on the manufacturing, the question is, does this widget work? Does it do what I say it does? Does it connect to the internet? Does it actually sense the temperature? Does it actually sense the light or whatever you're trying to do? You have to build a box that you can put this thing into that stimulates it, that, you know, talks to it and confirms that all that works. That box is oftentimes more complicated than the product itself. So consider like Chibitronics. We have circuit stickers that can do uh, operation like blink or fade or something like this, right? Seems very simple. It's actually at tiny, 8-bit micro, whatever it is. How does the code get there? It's not born into these things, right? How do you know the lights are blinking? All this sort of stuff. We actually use a Novena to program and test our circuit stickers. So we have this system that is like a full Linux box with all these infrastructure running a QT program and all the... It actually took us probably 
two or three months to develop the testing infrastructure for the sticker, which took us an afternoon to design and lay out, because it's a very simple layout. For, you know, the actual circuit itself is very simple. Uh, quite often, I think a lot of people who are getting ready for manufacturing says, great, I've got a product, let's just shove it in the factory, and we're gonna get like a thousand units back and they're all gonna work, and we're just gonna send it to the customers. Wrong. You're, you're very lucky if you get like even 80%, 90% yield off your very, very first run. And so how do you tell the one out of five units, they're bad. Are you just gonna ship it to customers and have them tell you that it's broken and, and catching fire in their house? No, right, you have to test it. Are you you gonna send an engineer to the manufacturing line to turn every single one on and see if it works? Some startups actually end up doing that because they don't, they didn't think that they had to have a testing program and they're shocked that things aren't working. So they basically buy a ticket, take the top engineer, send them out there and sit them on the line for like hours and hours and hours at a time, turning things on and shaking them and doing whatever it is to, to figure out the issue. That process of testability, design for manufacturing and so forth takes at least as much time as it took for you to conceive and design and get to the first prototype. Yeah, I have that experience recently. And I think the manufacturing and even trying to get it to scale is actually a, a, a science by itself. Yeah, it is. Actually. It is. And it's underappreciated science. The other part of it is what are the kind of traits that they need to look out for sourcing these hardware manufacturers. I mean, I always hear people saying, hey, it's easy to design a prototype. I'll take it to China and then they will scale, right? Uh -huh. But when then they go into China, they, they had a culture shock because uh -huh. some factories can only do electrical mm -hmm. pieces. Mm -hmm. Some factories can only do the mechanical pieces right. and some factories can only do plastics. Right. So what are the kind of things they need to look out for in sourcing these manufacturers? That is a pretty individual question. Like you say, many factories have different specialities. Mm. A lot of times you want to look for a factory that complements your capabilities. If you're really strong in mechanical, you may want to find a factory that knows more about electronics and you can help fill in the details on the mechanical side. Actually, ultimately at the end of the day, the most important thing is, is can you work with them as people. Like you say, there's a lot of culture shock when you when you can go out there. One of the rules of thumbs I have is when you tour a factory, if the, the big boss of the factory, if the Laoban doesn't at least come out and say hello and show his face, then maybe that factory is too big or they don't care enough about you. Because at the end of the day, if you can't get the sign off from the upper management in the factory, no matter how hard you try, how hard you push, if there is an issue that's sticky or thorny, there there's not a lot of incentive to really they're not really fully invested in working with you. If you get a factory where the big boss believes in your product and is willing to invest and help these things happen, you know, if they're missing a capability, they'll source it from the outside. Whatever it is, they'll bring it in. It's fine. You know, you, you, one of the great things about the Shenzhen area is that like everything is within like, you know, I don't know, 100 kilometers of you, right? A two-hour car ride. You can get basically anything manufactured. So if you're missing a small piece or whatever it is, fine, they'd go go to Taobao, Alibaba, wherever it is, they find someone, qualify, visit, get a vendor relationship going, and then all of a sudden that, that capability is there. No problem, right? But they only kind of really do that if they're fully engaged and they want to deal with the, the harassment of you know finding these. They're not going to... Otherwise, they'll be like talking like, well, maybe you don't actually need that feature. You know, who actually needs like that part? Design it without it. And then because they're just not really invested in, in helping you bring your product to market. Hmm. That's interesting. Then, I mean, how do they navigate in China? I know the Shenzhen ecosystem where most of the electronics happen at Huaqiang Bay. Have you also tried out Taiwan before? I mean, I've, I've visited Taiwan several times mm. uh, to sort of see the ecosystem and so forth. The Taiwanese manufacturers are really, you know, quite top-notch. They have really good discipline and really nice SMT lines and so forth. But kind of my impression is they're, they're of a much bigger scale then would be willing to talk to me, right? Okay. Like I'm kind of more on the small scrappy side of things, yeah. like very individual. You know, the Foxcons, the Quantas, like the Wistrons mm. and all those kinds of guys are just way, 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 way too big for me to really talk to. And I think most of the smaller prototyping type things have migrated into the, the Chinese ecosystem. They're mostly in China because the, the cost basis is lower and the, the labor pool is larger. So for my scale. I prefer to sort of get into the streets of Shenzhen and find people who are also, I can relate to, like I said, like these small guys who, you know, run a machine shop and they do these little things, whatever it is, they're much more willing to help me out than someone who has to check in with the boss to see if they can turn the machine after hours and, and run it for me or whatever it is. You know, it's, you know, I like, I like going into the, into the factory and I, I just literally get to go in there and touch the machine. And I say, well, how does this work? And the boss goes, Hey, you know, 
pause the line for a minute. Like the running production, they this yeah. literally happened. Like like slow down the line so this this guy can see what's going on. They don't have they don't have to like get a waiver. Or, they slow it down. You're like, oh okay, that's interesting. Can we like modify this? Can we do that? Can we change your process a little bit here? They say, yeah, we can think about it. Like, like the next the next run will happen like this day. Let's schedule it and give it a try, right? Mm-hmm. And then that was the whole decision, right? The whole decision making process happened there on the line, interactively with the people that matter. Whereas on a lot of these larger factories, if I want to do that, they have to like get the waivers to get you on the line. They have to have like a guy to give you the tour. If you want to stop the line, they have to like check the production scheduling. It's like because it's a big cost for them to pause the line for you and so on and so forth. It, it, there's all this overhead before you even get to the point of discovering that you need to do this. And then once you make the discovery and the decision, you have to write a report and send it up to three people and have it signed in triplicate and the boss has to sign and his boss has to sign it. And then eventually it comes down from the shareholders that you're allowed to do this thing because it make, make shareholder value. I don't know, whatever it is, right? Mm. It's just it's so much overhead. From what I understand from Benjoff, Shenzhen is like an AWS for hardware manufacturing. So for <laughs> startups, you can plug and play is, is, is that how it works? No, right? You can't press a button and yeah. start any manufacturing. You still need to do the traditional negotiation, yeah, absolutely. traditional sourcing, yeah, yeah. everything else, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that always makes me cringe is when they say, like, hardware is the new software. It, it, it's not, it's, I mean, it's a nice romantic notion, but at the end of the day, like, every atom is special, you know, in terms of how it's placed and what it's doing and is it in the right place and so on and so forth. And cloud services, the whole idea of cloud services, you have this completely generic platform that you can just, you know, call up and use and do what you need and they all respond identically, right? That's the key, they all respond identically. Uh, Hardware at the end of the day always involves some human being until we can build a fully actually automated robotized line where a human doesn't even have to step on it and the robots can somehow self-replicate themselves and build more lines for you as they need it you're always going to have some person involved mm. either it's the line manager or you have to hire more workers or whatever it is at the end of the day mm. as long as there's people involved it's not quite like cloud services right there's still that assembly worker so cloud services is like the bits and bytes are you can manage it but when it goes into atoms and molecules there's actually is a different yeah different layer altogether yeah and ultimately what you find is the biggest roadblock in any of this is people it's human resources whether it's the boss or it's the tech or it's the the delivery guy even or a, a customs tax person or any kinds of things there's always these people get in the way or wherever they have their own interest in the harder operation that's not aligned with yours and you have to solve that problem you you always usually when i look at problems in the manufacturing side like once the design is done and so forth you know you look for electrical problems but once the design is done it's mostly debugging people and relationships mm-hmm. at that point in time that's really most of what hardware manufacturing is all about mm-hmm. so one thing i think a lot of people hardware entrepreneurs that i talk to um that they don't think about is exporting the product into markets like the US and Europe and then they miss out things like certifications mm, and mm. do you have any advice on that? I think this is something that is actually someone like you who came from the US you're kind of much more aware of certain standards and Yeah, yeah. I, I think all hardware entrepreneurs are unaware of the international trade yep, barriers that's right <laughs> because, because you just you're so used to just walking into a store and you just pick it up and you what is this IDA certificate? Whatever, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's a number. What's this FCC? Yeah, thing? ISO 9000. Yeah, yeah, and whatever then, it is. Yeah. Just crap. And that, the funny thing is, is like, I guess the dirty secret is that the these rules for certifications are basically trade barriers, actually, at the end of the day. They're nominally there to protect you and your safety and so forth. But if you actually read, for example, the FCC rules, they're written in like the 1940s <laughs> and specifically to protect AM radios. Right. Like, you know, the, the, the shape of the pulse that they're trying to look for is to avoid people with AM receivers having interference. It's really just stupid. The, like the, the testing is doesn't, isn't even relevant to today's modulation standards and the interference regime that we have to deal with and all these kinds of things. It's completely frustrating to see to, to, to sit there in the chamber and know that you're trying to optimize for a point that doesn't even matter today because the regulations are out of date. And really, at the end of the day, it's more about kind of creating a barrier and saying, like, you have to follow our rules in our area. And if we don't like your product for some reason, we can reject it on certification terms, whatever it is, all this kind of Mm. safety certifications and whatnot. But that being said, the governments, you have to pay tax. 
right? You have to play by the rules. You have to have a passport. You have to have a visa. Otherwise, you go to jail or, or you get fined, whatever it is. You, what can you do? You know, generally speaking, you know, at a minimum, if you're doing electronics, you need FCC, CE, or the equivalent of emissions testing for your region. If you're doing anything that involves youth or children or medical care, you welcome to a world of hurt, right? Particularly for very young children and infants. There's a reason why all the products look like these armored plastic cages with nothing they can fall <laughs> off because there's actually taste testing you have to go through to prove that you won't choke an infant, that nothing will fall off that can damage they can put in their mouth and eat it. And that, that all you have to show that certification. If you're doing anything in medical care, like, you know, just forget it, right? It's like you have mm -hmm. to certify not only the product, you have to certify your whole supply chain. That's true right. and true, you have to have like a whole set of like, uh, you know, FDA or whatever it is, ISO, Certifications, that's that's really painful. And another thing that a lot of people aren't aware of, there's this other thing called the Underwriters Lab in the United States, UL testing, which I think has a different name overseas in different places like CTIC and CE and whatever it is, TUV. I forget. I don't know what it is in Europe. But the that certification only applies to products that have higher voltages. And so one mistake some entrepreneurs do is like, I'm going to make this rechargeable thing that plugs directly into the wall. Right, so I want to make, say, a flashlight that is rechargeable and it has these prongs that come out and you just plug it in the wall. The reason no one ever does that, because the moment you do that, you have to get this other set of certification for safety for the high voltage coming out of the wall. And that adds like another six months and, and it's destructive testing and the prototypes and this whole other thing. And so the, the, there's a rule, which is that if you buy a power supply that outputs a low voltage, you get the power supply pre-certified. And then everything behind that you don't have to certify because users can't get shocked beyond a certain beyond a certain point, which is why all everyone buys pre-certified power bricks that have mm -hmm. the UL and FCC everything on it ahead of time because that company that specializes in power bricks takes care of all that pain and it goes to a low voltage to your device. Okay. And so some startups just make this like mistake. You know, like oh well, just you know, it's so much more convenient. Why do I have to carry on this other like power brick if I just plug it right in the wall? You only have one thing to worry about. There's a reason no one ever does that. Okay, that's interesting to know. One of the things that has changed in the hardware world is the rise of what I call crowdfunding platforms. Mm -hmm. There is Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and CrowdSupply, which you use two out of three. What is your opinion in running crowdfunding campaigns, and what are the do's and don'ts? So let's let's start first with like the crowdfunding platform. So Kickstarter is kind of like the big hot thing today. The problem I have with Kickstarter at the end of the day is they're fundamentally have a conflict of interest with the end user. Kickstarter's model is we fund dreams, put whatever you want out there, we'll take 5% and go fuck off, right? It's kind of like the idea. So if the, if the thing doesn't actually deliver, whatever, you funded the dream, right? We're not actually here to sell you products. And so they have an incentive to go for bigger and bigger, crazier and crazier dreams because people will give you more and more money because they always get 5%. And then you guys deal with the rest. And so I have a, a, a little bit of worry that at some point in time, that scheme will have to change, right? Because you're starting to, another sort of weird thing that Kickstarter does is they say, we well, have very few failed campaigns. But that's because if you're terminally late in a campaign, it's not a failed campaign. They just say they're just late. They're like 10 years late now, whatever. They're not, they've been around for 10 years. But eventually <laughs> you get to that point where they're saying it's 10 years late. It hasn't failed. They're just really late, right? Right. Uh, and they only consider campaign field until the creator itself declares like we can't deliver your promise I, i'm sorry we gave up and so things are sort of artificially biased a little bit i think they're sort of building a toxic waste dump of things that are eventually going to i worry is going to affect their reputation and it's going to affect the viability of crowdfunding in general because people get turned off by it. I've sort of engaged with a platform called CrowdSupply where they're much more aligned with customers' interests because they, A, do fulfillment and customer service themselves. So if you make a product and it's not shipping on time, wherever it is, they get pounded by questions, right? So they want to minimize that back end. And so they have an incentive to make sure they're picking campaigns that will fulfill oh. and will do the right thing and they will do a shipment. And furthermore, Instead of having a, a crowd campaign website that goes dead, so Kickstarters, after they're done, the, the website freezes. Yep. You can't take orders, which is really frustrating because you have all this SEO that goes into it. Mm. And then the top link in Google is like this thing that says, ah, you can't order anymore, right? Mm. You know, go to this other website. You know, the, uh, the prince is in another castle. The princess mm. is in another castle, right? Crowd Supply actually goes ahead and turns that campaign page immediately into a pre-order page. It's like an e-commerce. Yeah, it goes it to e-commerce. E e it goes page. to e-com back end, right? And then CrowdSupply 
can continue to make margin off of that continuing ongoing sales and help fund their operation. So in fact, Crowd Supply really, really wants you to ship your stuff mm. because they can continue make money off of it. They're actually are more in the supply chain, more aligned with users at the end of the day. So fundamentally, I feel like their model is more sustainable, right? Mm. And so that's why even though crowd supply is relatively small and obscure, I feel like as I want to rely on crowdfunding as a platform for me in the future, I want to pick something that I feel will be there for a longer term. At least the model will be there longer. We can mm. show people there's a different way than just the Kickstarter way. So that's why I'm, I use crowd supply. Again, crowd supply does fulfillment. And when I did hacking the Xbox, no one would print that book. Originally, it was too controversial. I got dropped by my publisher. So when I first started selling it, I actually made the mistake of saying, I will pack and ship all the books myself. How hard could it be? You know, I had a sedan back in the day, and I would fill it, like every compartment from the floorboard to the ceiling with books that were in envelopes that I had to like put the stamps on and I had to drive that thing down to the post office. They'd see my sedan walk in. This guy would come with a big orange bin and say, oh, there's that guy. And I'm just like throwing like books into like this bin and that would take my whole day. It's great to ship a lot of things, but it turns out that I was able to do no more writing, no more hacking, no more engineering because all I did all day long was essentially putting stamps on books and putting them in. Envelopes. And then people would call you at 2 a.m. and be like, hey, where's my book? I ordered it. Like, you know, you're like, hello. And like, uh, it's coming. Don't worry about it. And eventually they're like, wait, are you... Are you bunny? Like, yes. Who do you think is going to answer the phone? Like, you're actually <laughs> calling me. That's that's the customer support line is I don't have anything else to do this, okay. right? So customers are very demanding and fulfillment can take all your time. Customer support can take all your time. It's like it's like a huge burden on your company if you don't have a solution for that from day one. Crowd Supply gives that to you. They actually have this whole fulfillment back end. It's, it's, it actually worked really, really well. We've now done two campaigns with it and it's, it basically worked flawlessly. Okay. So, so that's something that you really want to look out for and a value you have to line up. Um, if you don't get it through Kickstarter, you have to find a, a third party anyways to do, to do your mm. fulfillment and build in the cost of that from the beginning. In terms of doing the campaign itself, running a campaign is difficult. It takes a lot of time. Some people are like, oh, we'll just put together a video and we'll have lots of links and money will come <laughs> in. And so, you know, basically, the month and a half that the campaign is running, doesn't exist in your life anymore, right? If your campaign is doing well at all, right? Or if, if it's not doing well, you're gonna spend all your time promoting it, right? Like when we run these campaigns, it's just like this grind of like people asking for questions and interviews and special things and samples and and previews and whatever or not. And, and, and you're trying to come up with different things like what are my stretch goals gonna be and how do I put these together and things weren't going right and whatever. So, you lay out your schedule, basically take your founding team and write them off for that period of time, which is actually a big, a lot of time, a month and a half, two months is a lot of time out of a startup schedule. And also don't start your campaign too early. That's my personal feeling. I mean, some people are much more hawkish, you know, about like when we should start. But like I said, for my campaigns, I actually don't run the campaign until I've done essentially a pilot run through the factory for the product, like actually know the factory can build it. And so all the campaign answers at the end of the day is, how many do I build? I don't know how many I should build. Okay, well, let's run a campaign and take some orders. And you know, okay, I need to build a thousand of them now. Okay, well, now that I know I actually need to build a thousand, I spend the next four or five months figuring out how do I get the best cost and the right supply chain and make the tweaks on my assumptions to produce the thousand and not lose money. And mm -hmm. that's the sole focus of the next few months is how do I run the business of fulfilling the thousand? There's no questions about will it work, what the features will be, how the tooling skills are going to come yet. That's all been answered. But even that question alone of how do I get that thousand units out there at the best cost possible with the quality I need will take up all of your time. That is hard enough as it is, right? right. Yeah. But a lot of teams are like, oh, we'll just build it and then we'll ship it, right? Right. That, that's not going to happen. Just does not happen. That's why so many of them ship late is they didn't factor in any of that time. Right, and also they lost a lot of money in the process and some of the campaigns have to die. Yeah, yeah, right, because they just they simply don't know. And so the other good news is by having run your first pilot run, you know really well what your costs are. Mm. I've seen the PO and the invoice from the factory for the, the full costs. Nothing is missing, right? Mm. You know, I actually have the full shippable product here and here's how much it costs to build in quantity 10, mm. right? And I can go from there and, and apply metrics to scale it down to where I think it will be based on price points. And then I can pick a margin and a realistic point. I won't lose money because I know really what it is. But a lot of people, 
They're like, oh, yeah, we'll just, um, I don't know, whatever. These Bluetooth modules, we can get them for $2, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll price it at X. And they're like, come back a month and like, holy crap, they all cost $10, actually. Like, we can't find anyone who actually <laughs> sell it for, for $2 because we just, we thought that was a good link on, on whatever Alibaba or whatever it is. It turns out to be crap, right? And you're like, okay, well, you know. Welcome to the wonderful world of hardware. Yeah, yeah. Either you keep your promise or you don't keep your promise. Right. <laughs> what do you want to do, right? Mm. And then, and, and do you want to raise some VC to do that, or you take a loan, or do you? I mean, it becomes really ugly at that mm. point in time. So, are there any like hardware resources where you also refer these hardware entrepreneurs to re go to? There's there's more and more and more of them these days. I actually one resource I saw that was really good is Shoplocket. It has all these interviews with, with people mm -hmm. and so forth and they've published like a little book mm. uh, which contains really, really good information. In fact, I, I, I forget what the book is called but I was paging through the other and I was like, if I only had this in 2005 when I started Chumbi, we would make, I would not have made so many of these mistakes. Ah. So there's a, and then, you know, Hackcelerator actually has a huge repository of mm. like, presentations they share publicly and they have really good advice um so on and so forth so that now that harder manufacturing is becoming more you know of a thing i think there's a lot of community resources and people who know how to do it out there that being said don't if anyone ever comes to you and says it's easy and then you know we can scale it and and all this sort of stuff like super like all these <laughs> things like, like you know no it's not that's not actually the case it, it all requires a lot of effort and time and you have to pay attention mm. I guess the last part of it I'm going to ask you is a little bit about living in Asia and open source hardware in yep. Asia. Yep. So how do you find open source hardware in Asia as compared to the US? Mm, interesting. So uh, it depends on what you define as open source, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the purpose of answering this question, mm. I'm using little o open source, not like mm. officially licensed stuff, but stuff that mm. I can find data sheets and specs and schematics for regardless of the license. Yep, right? agree. To that extent, right, there's a massive open source ecosystem out here because, all, because of all the Shenzhou and the rampant copying or whatever you want to say, all those plans are available out here. You can go to a market in Shenzhen and buy iPhone 6 schematics today in a book that's printed with color guides and like pointers to how to debug things and originally also the schematics, right? Wow. And part numbers and all that sort of stuff. That's an awesome resource because, for example, I was like wondering the other day, what kind of IC should I use for some type of power application? I went to a book of schematics and sort of thumbed through it and found a list of ICs that the big guys were shipping in huge volume, right? And you know if the guys picked it, they're going to be available millions and millions and millions out there. You can argue the price down super low and you have no worry about supply availability. And so because of these, you know, kind of this quote unquote openness they have, you know, you can get a kind of an advantage uh, uh, understanding these supply chains the ideas are all shared out there. You want to do, I don't know, how, you know, here's, here's the thing that no one ever tells you how to do. How do you do ESD protection? ESD is electrostatic discharge, like static electricity protection right. for the ports right. and all that sort of stuff, right? And you might be lucky to find a couple app notes about it on the manufacturer's pages, but they're all sort of like, well, here's, a, here's an application circuit, but we don't know if it's going to actually work, right? When you look at a shipping product like a phone that's shipped a million units, they're going to have done the ESD protection correctly. They had to do certifications globally for every possible scenario. It's awesome to be able to read that. You're like, oh, why did they put the capacitor there? Why is this resistor here? Why are these kinds of things? You think about it like, oh, that's very clever. That's how you do ESD. That's actually how you do ESD protection. Mm -hmm. That's the, the modern way to do it, right? Not like this old thing you, you read from a textbook in 1940 or whatever mm -hmm. it is, which is like this out-of-date practice, right? And so having this ecosystem out here is actually really really helpful, very, really, really interesting. Um, mm. We start, actually, one of the funny things, when we started designing Novena, mm. um, there's a lot of circuits inside laptops that aren't really talked about, particularly in the power management stuff, like how do you shut down That's right. the LCDs, how do you shut down the audio and like do power management in, in a laptop, all that system integration glue. One of the first things I did, I went to a library in China, I picked up this like, you know, sort of four or five centimeter thick book of schematics, like of laptops. Every imaginable laptop was in there. And I just read it to learn 
what does Acer do? What does Lenovo do? What does like Asus do? What does what does Mac do? Like all these different things, like all all of the schematics are in there, and you just kind of like read it and you learn the techniques. And like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. And then and then at the end, you're like, okay, now I'm ready to try designing my own laptop because I've studied like the history of laptops for the last five <laughs> years in these books that you can just buy off the shelf in China. It's really actually quite quite amazing. Yeah, I could see that all the Apple designer, design engineers doing that too. Yeah. <laughs> Given that they spend so much time on their hardware. Yeah. So, but on the overall in the hardware trends in Asia, I mean, there's a lot of manufacturing going on. Are you? Do you think that we will also go upstream at some point? I mean, Japan's probably the most advanced in terms of, like, doing hardware. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by going upstream? That means the Shenzhen ecosystem. I mean, they are not just going to be doing manufacturing. Because the cost is cost is going to go up. Yeah, sure. Correct. But yeah. do you see that we're going to go upstream, or we're we going to just retain this current advantage? I mean, I I I think absolutely the, all ecosystems, particularly when you get to this scale and mm. this this sort of mass, tends to go upstream, mm. right? Every it's it's this weird human nature thing. The really good guys who were techs. In the beginning, want to become designers. The really good designers want to become entrepreneurs. The really good entrepreneurs want to own big businesses. You have these. It's like the salmon swimming up the the river to to their. You know, mm-hmm. they, they just keep fighting their way up, right? And so mm-hmm. I think you will see this upstream of of things uh, happening in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do hope that they don't just completely get out of like low cost manufacturing. Right. Uh, I hope they do manage to figure out how to keep costs under control because it's a, it's a great resource at the end of the day. It's a very unique ecosystem and to have that lost and have it go someplace else and maybe not done as well would be would be sad. But yeah, absolutely. I, I, I see, you already see trends in that space. I mean, you know, you know, Xiaomi came kind of out of the ecosystem and they're really reputable, very, you know, huge, you know, solid player in the mobile phone space, right? And they're mm. building really nice looking phones at this point in time. And you're, I think you're gonna, you know, see more and more stuff. And then, you know, China is also growing a huge group of people who write software. The, you know, the whole Alibaba, Taobao, mm. you know, Tencent, QQ, yep. like WeChat mm. phenomenon that's that's driving there. They, there's a whole lot of really good software now being written in, in China. With it's very usable, very stable. Like it's not no longer ha- like used to. China software had this weird. <laughs> reputation being this quirky broken stuff and now it's actually really polished and and looking good they understand how to how to do it so that they're, uh-huh. there's definitely an upstream happening okay so help my audience how do they find you how do they find me best way to sort of just catch up with what i'm doing is go to my blog at uh, bunnystudios.com uh like b-u-n-n-i-e S-T-U-D-I-O-S.com. And that's probably the first way we, we have. Uh, if you're interested in sort of the open hardware products we're doing, we you know, Kosagi, the company mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier, K-O-S-A-G-I.com is our wiki. There's also a forum there. You can post questions uh, that, you know, I go like once a week or so and sort of see what the questions are and try to <laughs> answer them and whatnot. I think you've answered a lot of questions on Quora, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> okay, you can find me at bleongcw or bernardleong.com or you can follow this podcast at Analyze Asia with an S, not a Z, and analyzeasia.com. We can be found on iTunes, so- SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please leave your reviews one star or five star. I'm okay, I'm all open to feedback. You know, Asian podcasters seem to get a lot of feedback on, on most channels. So, anyway, once again, uh, Bunny, thank you. Yeah, thanks.